Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. If you want to get your Bibles or your Bible app out, we'll be in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, and then on to 11 through 18. So early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, guys. We are in a season here at the Vine called Eastertide. Eastertide is a season in the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, that falls between Easter and the Ascension or the day of Pentecost, depending on which calendar you follow. Uh, We've been going through a series called The Stations of the Resurrection using the artwork of Scott Erickson, and we're looking at different moments that happened between Jesus and different people in those 40 days when he walked the earth after Easter Sunday and before he ascended. 40 days is kind of a long time. I was thinking about that. It's like over a month, he's just hanging out in this resurrected body here on earth. And today we get to look at one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories, which is this moment we just read about where Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Lord. I'm going to kind of recap what happened because we skipped a few verses. So we've got, you know, Mary, while it's still dark, she wakes up and she goes to the tomb and she notices that the stone of the tomb is rolled away. So she runs and she goes to get Peter and John. John didn't name his name. You might think this because he's being modest, but I can't believe that because he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved, which just cracks me up every time I read it. Um, So modest. So anyway, she runs to get Peter and John. She brings them back to the tomb. They all go. The tomb is empty. There's like the linens that have been wrapped around the body of Jesus there in the tomb, but there's no one there. Nothing else is going on. And the scripture tells us they didn't understand about the resurrection, Peter and John, so they go back to the place that they've been hiding out because things are kind of uh, a little scary at this time in Jerusalem. Mary, on the other hand, our story pivots back to her. She goes back to the tomb and we see her now. There's people in the tomb. There's these two angels and they ask her why she's crying and she says, they have taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they have put him. Of this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, 
my favorite part. <laughs> she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Does anyone else think it's like super weird the way no one recognizes Jesus? Like it happened in our scripture last week as well that Jesus is hanging out with the people on the road to Aramaeus and they, they don't know who he is. And I don't know if that's like, he just doesn't look like himself. Mary doesn't seem to recognize him when she sees him and when he talks to her. So it's not, she doesn't recognize the sound of his voice. And I imagine like a resurrected body would have like a halo or some kind of glow, but it must not because he looks ordinary enough that Mary thinks he's the gardener. She has no idea who he is. I was thinking about this and I was listening a couple of weeks ago to an app that I listened to called, listened to called Lectio 365. It's like a daily devotional app. It gives you reflections and it happened to be on this passage. So I was like listening and, and the guy on the app says this. He says, perhaps it was the tears or the early dawn twilight or simply the fact that Mary would have had no psychological framework for finding Jesus alive after watching his brutal crucifixion. But when Mary first sees Jesus, she mistakes him for a gardener. I kind of like the theories in this quote. Perhaps it was the tears, right? We know that she's been crying. She's been weeping. It says it multiple times in this passage. And weeping, to me, is different from crying. It's not like the single tear rolling down your cheek. It's like that, that kind of weeping where you're, like, making sounds. And it's so uncontrollable that when she sees these people, she doesn't even know. She doesn't stop it. She's still weeping, when she sees this gardener. She's weeping when she sees the men in the tomb. And I have had the experience of weeping like this, and I know that it does literally like swell your eyes shut. And there's a possibility that maybe that blurred her vision, or maybe it's the dark. I love that idea. So, you know, it said at the very, very first verse, you might have missed it, but verse one, it said, while it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb. I love that tiny detail that gives us a lot of information about Mary, right? I don't know if it's that she couldn't sleep or she woke up early, but either way, it's like she couldn't cope with like taking another morning in in this world without her Jesus. She has to go. She has to go and be near his body while it's still dark. She can't even wait. She can't even wait for the light. And so she goes. And so maybe she couldn't see between the darkness and her tears, or maybe like the quote says, it's just that there's no psychological framework. In my Bible, this story is on this page, and if I flip back one page right here in the exact same spot, I see Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the wife of Cleopas, sitting at the foot of the cross while they watch their Jesus be tortured and murdered. I cannot even imagine the trauma of watching someone you love go through that. I imagine it left quite an impression on her body and her soul and her mind. And I'm just not sure that the brain can, two days later, be ready to recognize that same person alive and healthy. Like, I don't think our brains can do that. Maybe it's the tears, maybe it's dark, or maybe it's, this isn't possible. But either way, Mary doesn't res recognize the resurrected Jesus when he's standing in front of her and he's talking to her. And I wonder if it's the same for us, right? That in those moments when it's really dark and there's a lot of tears and there's a lot of pain, it's really hard to recognize the resurrected Jesus. It's really hard to see God moving in your life. The same app that day, the Daily Devotional, it, it said this, it had this reflection question in it. It said, in what ways might past disappointments or prior expectations be obscuring the things Jesus is doing? Where do we need new expectancy where pain and grief might have blurred our eyes. That second question, uh, I love it. I think it's great. And it also like rubs me the wrong way. It irritates me somehow. I think it's because it's a big ask. I think that's a big ask. I, I think it's a big ask for Mary on Sunday to be ready and hoping to see the resurrected Lord when she just on Friday watched him be tortured 
Like maybe sometimes you can go through something horrific and you can heal enough that your heart is ready to hope again and look expectantly. But that's not what this question is asking. It's not asking for Mary to wait until the dark has passed and then be willing to hope again. It's asking her while it's still dark, will you look expectantly for the resurrected Jesus? Right? We have these moments in our life where we hope for something, we want something, and we wait for it, and that it seems more impossible, more impossible. We keep hoping, we keep hoping, and then we get to that threshold where it's like it's not possible anymore. The moment has passed, and there's this crushing disappointment that leaves us with this sense of, of pain and shame and fear. And sometimes we can heal enough that later down the road we'll hope again. But this, this question is, will you, in the moment the disappointment hits, in the moment the pain and shame and grief are overtaking you, in that moment, will you hope again? It's a hard thing, I think. It's a, it's a big ask. Disappointment is like one of the worst feelings. And that morning in Jerusalem, there was a lot of disappointment going on. Right? There was a lot of like crippling, crushing disappointment These people who followed Jesus, they'd given up everything. They'd banked everything. They'd left their homes. They'd left their families. They'd left their career. They banked everything on the truth that he is the Messiah and he's come to save them, that he's God. And then they they watch him as he gets put in handcuffs. And I imagine there's that flicker of like, "He he can still do this. He can still get out of this, right? And then they watch him get nailed to the cross. And for some of them, maybe that was the breaking point. It's over crippling feeling of disappointment. Maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe we were foolish to follow Jesus. Maybe we were wrong to bank in him. And then you see at the cross, these three women still there, right? They're still there. They're still hoping. Maybe he can still get out of this, right? It's even said by one of the soldiers, like, if you're God, get off the cross. You can still do it. Prove yourself. And then he dies. They watch him breathe his last breath, and he says, it is finished. And Jesus is gone. And this hope is crushed. And all across the city, there's people waking up to the terrible feeling of, I was wrong about him. I was wrong about him. And the disciples and the followers of Jesus, they've scattered and they've gone into hiding. And even the guy who came to bury Jesus to take his body, it says he, he did it quietly because he didn't want anyone to know that he had been a follower of Jesus. Right? It was dangerous. There was risk. And then we have Mary Magdalene, right, who who while it's still dark, comes running to the tomb. While the disciples are hiding, she's there. And and, and while Joseph is trying to keep it quiet when he's burying the body of Jesus, Mary is running around telling anyone who will listen, even these two strangers, like, he's my Lord. Where is my Lord? I need his body. She's calling it. She's she's proclaiming with her words that she's a follower of Jesus out loud. She's yelling it. (laughs) Like, it's, it's like she doesn't know the danger, and I don't think that Mary was there. I don't think she was running to the tomb. This passage doesn't tell us because she was expecting the resurrection. It's not like that's what she was thinking. But, but somehow we see this flicker of hope in her, right, that she's holding on to no matter what it looks like, no matter how dark it seems, I, I'm going to hold on to this idea that I wasn't wrong about Jesus. I wasn't wrong to follow him. I wasn't wrong to love him. I'm going to hold on to the idea that no matter what it looks like, no matter how dark it got, I'm not wrong about who he was. We see that in her bold proclamation in the dark when all hope is lost, when Jesus has seemingly been proved a fraud or a failure, right? Mary is still clinging to him. She's still calling him Lord, and that's part of the reason why she is in the right place at the exact right time to be the first ever witness of the resurrection. I think that's such a beautiful invitation and encouragement for us today. 
I think there's an invitation for you that like when the darkness comes, maybe you don't have enough hope to like look for the risen Christ in your midst. Maybe you, maybe you don't have that yet. But maybe you have enough to like cling to Jesus, to hold on to no matter what it looks like. You weren't wrong about him. You weren't foolish to follow him. You can hold on to that in the dark. There's an invitation in that and there's an encouragement here that when you do that, when you cling to Jesus in the dark, you're in the perfect place to witness the resurrection. You're the closest you'll ever be to the power of the resurrection, right? Mary may not have been there to witness the resurrection, but she was there clinging to Jesus, and so she got to witness the resurrection, right? If we cling to Jesus in the dark, it sets us up. We're in the perfect place to witness the resurrecting power of God. While it's still dark, that's when resurrection happens, right? While it's still dark is when miracles take place. It's actually the only place that miracles can take place, right? When, when you've gone through the land of everything that's possible and you find yourself in the land where it's no longer possible, where it's impossible, where hope is lost, that's where miracles, which by definition are the impossible, improbable happening, that's where they're born. That's the soil for them. While it's still dark is where they happen. Uh, there was a great writer named Rachel Held Evans, and she died really young. And at her funeral, this woman, Nadia Bowles-Weber, preached a sermon on this passage, and she says this. I do not know why this is God's economy, that it is while we are still in despair, that is while we are still grieving, while we are still sinners, while we are sure that nothing good will ever come, that is when we are faced with the nothingness of death that we are closest to resurrection that it is while it is still dark that God does God's most wondrous work. I wonder like what happened next, this moment we're gonna look at in a second when Mary recognizes Jesus. I wonder how profoundly that changed forever, her interaction with the dark. Like not that dark moments weren't gonna come again for Mary, like we know that they were, like we know that the followers of Jesus are gonna walk through like incredible torture, incredible trauma in the rest of their lives but that maybe this moment like forever made it so that the dark, no matter how painful it was, there was always this correlation that it's also the place you're gonna find Jesus, that it's also the place you're gonna witness the power of God, right? Like some kind of reverse trauma working on her body, which reverse trauma is not a thing. I just coined the term here today. You're, you're here for the first ever reverse trauma speech. <laughs> Um, no, trauma. Trauma is a thing that happens to us when, when we experience an incident that totally shifts the way we think the world works. Our entire sense of what the rules are, of the system, of how this world that we exist in, how life works, something happens that changes it. And it's such an intense emotional experience that your brain is like, we can't, we can't log this just as a single memory. We need to log this as a rule for how the world works. It needs to be like this pair of glasses we put on and every single moment we encounter from now on, this was such an intense experience that every single moment we're gonna go into prepared for that to happen again. And trauma is your body trying to protect you. It's your body's way of bracing itself, constantly being vigilant for that memory, that moment to happen again so you're never caught off guard. And I just love the idea that this moment, weeping at the tomb when she recognizes Jesus, that that performed the same work 
uh, on her body, that, that, that her body holds the memory. There was such an in, intense emotional experience that changed the rules of what's possible, of how the world works, of what's true about who is God and who is not. Like all of it so impactful in that single second that I wonder if from that moment on it impacted everything Mary did that it changed her entire perspective on how the world works. And that no matter, even if she thought differently, that her body in the dark was always bracing, always ready for like the power of God, for the resurrected power of Jesus. I love that idea. I want us to look at the actual moment, the moment she recognizes Jesus, because it's just the best. So, you know, this guy's seen the two guys in the tomb. She turns around, this guy is talking to her, and he says to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I love this so much. What is it that Jesus says that causes Mary to suddenly recognize him? He says her name. There's something in the way that Jesus says her name that is so familiar that it transcends how he looks or how he sounds or the darkness or the tears. It transcends even what her brain believes is possible and she recognizes him. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene for a second, give a little backstory on her. What we know about her from the Gospels is she was one of these women who used to follow Jesus around and support him in his ministry. It says Uh, And Luke, that she had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. So, you know, she'd been possessed at some point in her life by seven demons. And Nadia, the woman who I read that excerpt, that quote from a minute ago, she says this in the same sermon. She's talking about why Mary might have been there that morning and why she might have been weeping so hard. I wonder if maybe Mary was crying because to Jesus, she wasn't that crazy lady like she was to everyone else. To him, she was just Mary. And when Jesus said her name, Mary, it felt like a complete sentence. And now she wondered who would ever see her as a whole, who would ever call her by her real name. I don't know how long Mary was possessed by demons. I don't know if it was years of her life. I don't know how people talked about her during that season. I don't know how they talked about her after, but I imagine for the rest of her life, as she followed Jesus around, there was forever this like tone around how her name was said. Like she was always the qualifier. This is the girl who used to be possessed. And maybe some people said it with awe and worship, like, oh my gosh, Mary, share your story about how Jesus healed you. Like talk about how you're possessed by those demons. Maybe some people said it with fear and judgment, but I wonder how often she got to be in a space where that wasn't who she was, where she wasn't defined by that story about her. Maybe Jesus was the only one who ever just called her Mary, just saw her beyond that, because to Jesus, she is Mary. She's herself. She's exactly herself. She's not, she's not the things that have happened to her. She's not the place she's from, Magdalena. She's not who she's related to. She's, just, she's her own person. She's this unique creation. Jesus sees beyond all these experiences, all these categories, and just sees and names her. I was thinking about it this week, and I think it's a really specific thing that maybe like some of you in this room will have experienced, but maybe not many. It's a very specific thing to have this reputation that when your name is spoken, there's a tone to it. There's always a story to it. There's a a tone of pity 
or disgust or fear or anger. We may not relate to that, but I know that we all know what it is to be known by something about ourselves or about our story rather than just be fully known as who we are. Like maybe you're known for a good quality, right? When people introduce Haley, they're like, she's got a great voice. This is Haley, the one who can sing, you know? Or maybe your career, like Mark, the pastor. Here's Mark, he's my pastor. Maybe it's who you're related to, who your husband is, your wife, your kids. Maybe you're known for a quality about you, like your humor or that you make everything fun. And those things are lovely and they're wonderful. But sometimes we want to escape the categories. We want to have the freedom and flexibility to change because we know that we are more than those things. We are ourselves outside of those things. Maybe like Mary, you've been known for something about you that you didn't choose and you can't control. And even if you're so proud of how it turned out, even if like Mary, you're like, it's amazing that Jesus healed me from all these demons. Maybe for one minute, you wish you could just escape that part of your story that was traumatic and horrible and just for a minute, be free of it and just be you, right? I wonder if, of course, Mary recognized her name when Jesus said it because nobody said her name like that. Mary. Nobody says your name like that. So free of all the categories that you put yourself in, that the world puts you in, seeing beyond all of it to the core of who you are and calling good. Right? That's how Jesus says our name. And I wonder a little bit if no one knew Jesus like Mary knew Jesus. Like, no one knew Mary like Jesus knew Mary. And I wonder if no one knew Jesus like Mary knew Jesus because I don't know what demonic possession is like and I don't know what healing from it is like. But there's some kind of intimacy that has to happen for Jesus to heal, to go inside and reclaim her mind and her spirit and her soul. And I wonder if in that intimacy, in that healing process, he got to see parts of her that no one else ever did, and she got to see parts of him that no one else ever did, and it formed this like unique, special, mutual affection between the two of them because Jesus chose to appear to Mary first. And he chose, in the next verse, to send her. Let's look at that. It says, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Mary, and then he sends her. Thomas Aquinas calls Mary the, I'm going to butcher this, apostella, apostolorum. It sounds like a Harry Potter spell. But it, it means apostle to the apostles. The apostles are the people who were entrusted to spread the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. She's the one who shares the good news with them. Jesus chose to appear to Mary first, and he chooses to send her as the first ever proclaimer of the gospel. And honestly, it doesn't seem to me to be the wisest choice. Because... You may remember this, but on Easter Sunday, Mark talked about this for a second, but, but back in the day in this time, in order to be considered a credible witness to something that had happened, a, a crime or an event, you needed to have two witnesses, it's first requirement, and they need to be male. So I don't know if Jesus like set his alarm wrong on the resurrection, but he just missed an incredible window of opportunity because Mary came to the tomb and the stone was rolled away and she ran and she got two male witnesses and she brought them back with her to the tomb. And it was empty. He wasn't there. 
He could have shown up in that moment and the three of them, Mary Magdalene could still have had this awesome moment with him and they could have all gone together to share the news of the gospel. But he waits, he waits until they're gone. He sets it up so that if Easter Sunday news is gonna break through the sorrow and the despair and disappointment, it's gonna depend on believing the word of a woman and it's gonna depend on believing the word of this woman who hasn't always been in possession of her faculties. Right? It's going to depend on that. You've got the disciples, they're sitting there in despair and hopelessness. You've got, you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's just lost her son. And they are going to hear the news either way. Jesus is going to show up to them end of, the, end of that Easter Sunday. But that despair and that darkness can be over now because Jesus is alive. And they can know that and they can walk in that and they can experience that changing everything. Easter morning, if they will believe, Mary Magdalene. Jesus sets it up so that they have to believe a woman and they have to believe this woman who has been possessed by seven demons. And you can imagine the way people might have talked about her interaction with reality or non-reality, right? Maybe God does this because this is our God and he has always been in the business of elevating marginalized voices and usurping culture Right, He values women, and he values the people that society puts to the side. He gives their voices weight and worth, and I think he also knows that people like Mary are the most trustworthy with the gospel. People who have been left out in every other space, they're the ones who love and cling and steward the gospel best. He chooses Mary, and it's not a mistake, and he sends Mary, he sends her, he entrusts her with the most precious, sacred, life-changing news. Just think about that moment for Mary. I mean, there's a kind of love that comes from being wanted and being welcome, right? Mary's experienced it as she follows Jesus, that he always makes a space for her, that he welcomes her. There's a kind of love that comes from that. And there's a kind of love that comes from being valued, from being trusted, from someone looking at you and thinking you are worthy of holding the words of the gospel in your mouth, right? I don't even know what it would have felt like for her to be trusted that way, right? I'm sure so many people treated her like a liability. Like, how did she even get demon-possessed in the first place? You can imagine the whispers. Was there some frailty of mind or spirit? Was there some weakness or deficiency in her? Maybe people were just scared of her. Maybe even the people who loved her were like, protective of her, like she's a little bit fragile, a little bit delicate. She's been through this horrible thing. Watch how you speak around Mary. I can't imagine there were a lot of people vying to give her like places of responsibility in this new world order that is going to be the kingdom of God. I can't imagine people were like, let's entrust that to Mary. And I can't even imagine that she would want that. I can't even imagine how fractured her relationship, her trust with herself must be after going through something like that. How hard it must have been to trust her mind, to trust her body, to trust her soul, to trust that she can tell the difference between what's real and what's not real. But whatever happens in this moment with the resurrected Jesus changes everything because Jesus entrusts this message to her and Mary turns and she goes and she speaks it and she doesn't hesitate. There's no, like, I'm not the person for the job speech. There's no, like, what if they don't believe me? Or maybe can you come with me? Or maybe I'll go back and get them and bring them back here. Or can, can you send some linens with me to prove something? There's none of that. There's none of what we see with Moses in the Old Testament. He, too, encounters the living God, right? But he's worried about going to take the message of God. He's not, I'm not qualified for this job. Give me a staff so I can prove that you sent me. There's none of that. 
Mary doesn't hesitate. And there's also, and this is how I know that she's really changed in this moment by the resurrection, there's also no clinging to Jesus. When Jesus tells her to go and send this message, the main point of what he says is, I'm about to go away again. I'm going to ascend into heaven. I'm going to be gone. This is Mary, who while it was still dark, she couldn't even stay in her home. She needed to be near Jesus so much. She clings to Jesus. And when he says this news to her, there's no like, oh my gosh, please don't leave. There's no like, let me stay here for a minute before you send me. Let me cling to you. There's none of that. She turns and she goes. And when she gets there, when she speaks to the disciples, she doesn't preface her preaching with an apology. She doesn't hesitate. She doesn't mumble. She doesn't over-explain. She doesn't try to prove it to them. She just tells them confidently, I have seen the Lord, right? I think this moment changed her. The resurrection of Jesus changed her. Like, she loved being around Jesus maybe because he was the only one who truly saw her and he believed and he spoke into her that she was worth dignity and love and belonging. And I wonder if she gave up everything to follow him in her life because he was the best man she'd ever encountered and she treasured his opinion. And when he spoke just for a second, like the fear and the insecurity inside of her would quiet. She needed to be near him because deep down she wasn't sure it was true that she was worthy of love and dignity and respect. And I wonder if now, when she hears this man speaking worth and dignity into her by sending her, everything is different. Not because she's never heard Jesus talk to her like this, but everything is different because something shifts and she believes him. She believes him because the one speaking worth and dignity into her isn't just the best man she's ever known whose opinion is worth more than any opinion she's ever heard. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He's the firstborn over all creation, right? All things were created in him and through him, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and things invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. And he's before all things and he holds all things together inside of him, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And she knows it because he just rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And so it's not some guy saying that she's good. It's not some guy saying, I entrust you the greatest words that the universe has ever heard. I trust you with this message. It's not, it's not some guy. It's, it's God. And, and this thing, this truth about her that she is worthy and he entrusts this to her, it's not someone's opinion on her. It's, it's a reality being revealed. Right? Jesus' opinion isn't an opinion. It's the truth. It's reality. And she knows it because he's risen from the dead. So when she goes, when he sends her, she goes in Jesus's name with his authority, right? She doesn't have to overexplain and she doesn't have to hesitate or apologize or prove anything because she's going in the name of Jesus, the risen Lord who has conquered death and who has defeated the grave, right? And I bet she went in that room, she was so changed that some people like felt it, like they could feel the authority and the power of Jesus's name coming off of her, like the reality of who he was, you know? But I bet some people like were still like, you can just imagine their faces towards her, like worried for her, afraid for her. She lost her mind again. She lost possession of her faculties again. I don't think that Mary stopped being misunderstood that moment when Jesus spoke her name and sent her. I think she just stopped letting that misunderstanding have power over her. It stopped defining her in any way. She knew she was now. The risen Lord had spoken it into her, right? 
And from this moment on, we know that Mary didn't stop being misunderstood. You may have heard that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. It was a common misunderstanding in the church. In fact, in 1969, the Catholic Church had to issue an apology for the fact that they'd spread this rumor about Mary Magdalene for thousands of years. And I learned that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute on Monday of this week. Right? I've been believing that about her for 2,000 years. And when I, I started to spiral when I heard that on Monday, I was like, the church, like, how did the church do this? And who said this? And when did they say it? And what year was it? And how did that rumor get, like, just losing my mind? And then I realized that I don't think Mary cares. I don't think she's cared for the last 2,000 years. I think she's part of this great crowd of witnesses that surrounds us right now. And I, I think she's singing the same song she's always been singing. I have seen the Lord, and he is alive. It's not that she stopped being misunderstood. It's not that people stopped scoffing or scorning or gossiping. It's that it had no power anymore. What had shifted was that she didn't need Jesus to constantly be here in the flesh telling her because he'd spoken, and he's God. And in the name of Jesus, it is so. The resurrection changed everything for Mary Magdalene. And I hope and pray it does for you as well. I pray that when darkness comes, like when dark things come into your life, which they will, I pray that while it's still dark, you cling to Jesus. You run to him and you hold on and you hold on to the idea that you were not wrong. No matter how it looks, you weren't wrong to trust him. You aren't foolish to have followed him. And I pray that in that darkness, you would experience the resurrection of Jesus so personally and so viscerally that it would mark your body with the memory, with the sense that in the darkness, God comes. In the darkness, the resurrection is right around the corner, that it's only in death that resurrection happens. And that you would be able to look expectantly that in the dark, that's where God does his finest work. And I pray I pray that you would hear your name spoken by Jesus. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.